Welcome to Lit Sci Pod, the literature and science podcast, with your hosts, me, Dr. Laura Ludke, and Dr. Catherine Charlwood. We made it! Did we? Yes. We've made it to episode six of the second series of Lit Sci Pod. Oh, I was thinking we made it through the month of August. That too, I suppose. Either way, we made it. Yes. Yes, we have. On to the episode then. What do 19th century poetry and science, or science writing, have in common? Oh, I know this one. Words. Both use words. More specifically, both use figurative language and, and, and even, in the case of science writing, borrow poetic language and poetry to explore and express difficult and complex concepts. Precisely. And one of the key concepts and techniques in both poetry and science writing is the analogy. But what is an analogy? I just knew you were going to give me the difficult question. It had to be someone. Well, as it so happens, analogy is also important to the study of literature and science, particularly because of the way in which analogies allow us to explore shared ideas, concepts and languages across and between the two disciplines. Could we describe the interactions between literature and science without resorting to analogies like field, matrix, two-way traffic? I'm sure it's possible, but I'm glad we don't have to. At the core of the analogy is a transfer of information or meaning from one thing to another thing. Analogies can be used to determine and describe the relationship between things. Analogies can invite a comparison between two things that may not obviously be similar, but they can also invite a comparison between a thing that is known or familiar and a thing that is unknown or unfamiliar. And it's July the 24th, he's in Macunleth, and he's writing to his sister. A journal always contains something monotonous, and yet I cannot exactly say what it is. There is something lingering on the mind which, like the drone of a bagpipe, though not principal, is always present. Now, in the way of experiment, my dear Margaret, I will suppose myself scribbling to you. However, analogic expressions are not always helpful, and modernist poets in particular stretch the use of simile and metaphor to breaking point, often to make insightful points about the limits of language and of expression itself. Consider the opening metaphor in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of Jailford Proofrock. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. If the idea of the analogy is to compare something known with something unknown, then Eliot reverses this process to transform what is known into something that is unknown. The commonly observed phenomenon of the night sky is rendered into the uncanny sight of a patient etherized on an operating table. There are not many points of comparison between the two experiences and the two images, but Eliot, of course, uses this idea of the person who is pinned down, the insect maybe on a board, throughout the poem. So there's resonance across the poem to this image, but you don't learn a lot about the night sky. Analogies can also serve as the basis for other forms of rhetorical or figurative expression, like idioms. In fact, analogies are so commonplace in our manner of expression that it can be hard to express ourselves without them. Like when I'm trying to um, suggest to a colleague that they spend time thinking about something, I often say, let it percolate, probably because I'm a coffee fiend. But when we're trying to comprehend particularly complex information, We often talk about unpacking it or untangling it. And there's a lot of food-related analogies. So you're chewing on something or you're digesting it. So processing is very bodily, a messy, it's a messy process. And don't forget the important analogic relationship between vision and enlightenment, which suggests that light makes knowing and knowledge possible. In science, analogies are a very useful way of building new concepts or developing new theories. In the mid-19th century, for example, the mathematical physicist James Clerk Maxwell applied concepts from fluid dynamics to concepts in electrical sciences. We thus equate concepts of flows, waves, currents with electricity as well as with fluids. So often analogies are there to help accompany 
the reader or the listener to make sure they make the journey with you from one thing to another and that that sort of there's a successful transfer of information and one neat little poetic example which I've always loved of this uh, is Robert Frost's poem A Patch of Old Snow and I'm just going to read the whole thing there's a patch of old snow in a corner that I should have guessed was a blow-away paper the rain had brought to rest. It is speckled with grime as if small print overspread it. The news of a day I've forgotten, if I ever read it. And it's what's particularly wonderful for me about this poem is that if you read it alongside Frost's letters, uh, he talks about... In, in a prose way, he almost writes out the process of writing this poem and talks about how there are, quote, points of recognition, close quote, in it, that everybody knows snow, everybody knows what a newspaper is, and so therefore everybody can kind of make that leap between seeing old snow and seeing it as a newspaper. That's very true. Okay, on to our interview. Dr. Greg Tate is a lecturer in Victorian literature at the University of St Andrews. He did his first degree at the University of Sheffield and studied for his doctorate at Lineker College, University of Oxford. He taught at the University of Surrey as a lecturer in English literature before joining the School of English at St Andrews in 2015. In 2013, Greg was named as a BBC New Generation Thinker and in 2017-18 he was a British Academy Mid-Career Fellow. He is the author of two monographs, The Poet's Mind, The Psychology of Victorian Poetry, published by OUP in 2012, and 19th Century Poetry and the Physical Sciences, Poetical Matter, published by Palgrave just last year. He has published essays on Alfred Tennyson, Robert Browning, Jane Austen, John Keats, Humphrey Davy, and Science in the 19th Century Periodical Press. He is currently editing a volume of the poetry and prose of Arthur Hugh Clough for Oxford University Press's 21st Century Oxford Author Series. Thank you for joining us on Lit Side Pod, Greg. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, we'd like to invite you to take the B33 challenge, where you summarise your research broadly, then in three points, and finally in three words. Over to you. Okay, so my research basically looks at the ways in which the relation between matter and mind uh, is represented in 19th century literature, primarily 19th century poetry. And, th and thinking about the, the active role that language plays in representing that relationship between the mind and the material world. Uh, and not just the, the overt semantic contents of language, but it, its formal aspects, its sounds and its rhythms, which are particularly relevant to poetry, of course. And also the kind of cultural and historical associations that accrue around certain kinds of language, like poetry, um, and that can be used to express different views on this relationship between matter and mind. That's a good broad. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so now we're at, where are we at? Three points. Okay, so three points. I thought I would focus these on the most recent book about 19th century poetry and the physical sciences. So the first point is that... Uh, science and poetry in the 19th century were seen as sharing an inductive method. So they were both seen as relying on the observation of the material world as their starting point. But they were also seen as going beyond observation, uh, as using matter as the basis for abstract theories or speculations about the universe. And that's an important way in which they were connected together in the 19th century. Uh, point two, um, the rhythms of poetry were seen by a number of writers in the 19th century as being expressive of a kind of universal rhythm. Uh, and this was something that was argued not just by poets, you, you might expect to make such grandiose claims for their writing, but also by a lot of science writers. And the third point related to that is that throughout the 19th century, science writers uh, and researchers borrowed as much from poets as poets borrowed from scientists. I like the image of, of scientists as borrowers. That's going to stay with me. Um, <laughs> Very tiny things that live in cupboards. Tiny little scientific yeah. researchers. <laughs> uh, and finally, three words. The three words uh, are specific to the most recent book as well. And they are things forms, 
undulations. Ooh, okay, yes. Let's come back to that third one. I'm happy to say more about it. I was going to say, we're going to have to circle back to form as well. Oh, yeah, it's, it's all to come. Um, so I, compared to, to some of the other people we've interviewed, you're, it's broadly fair to say you're kind of poetry specialist in the field of literature and science. Mm, yeah. So what does poetry offer to sort of lit size scholarship that other genres do not or cannot offer? That is a great question. I think, and you're not going to be surprised that I say this, I think that poetry is is too often marginalised or, or often ignored in, in discussions about the links between literature and science. I think so, well, I, in my period anyway, in the Victorian period, so much lit-sci work in the Victorian period focuses on the Victorian novel. So I shouldn't generalise too much, but certainly in the Victorian period, I think that is the case. Um, I think... One of the most important reasons for putting poetry at the centre of literature and science, though, is that throughout so much of of the the history of the sciences, poetry has been an important form of expression for scientific knowledge and scientific thinking. Um, yeah. And again, you know, thinking about the 19th century specifically, but not just the 19th century, so many scientists uh, write poetry, um, and not just as a polite pastime or to show off their culture but as 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 something that helps them in a in a quite fundamental way think through their scientific ideas and so many science writers and researchers also quote poetry um again in the 19th century but also today if you just browse through a popular science book almost any there are poetic quotations in almost all of them um and i, I just think that's so interesting yeah. why that's persisted what is it about poetry that attracts uh, scientific researchers and people who write about science um, and I think the I think the the concision the compression of the language is one part of it I think it's very poetry is very often used by scientific writers and researchers to find a uh, a, a, a condensed way of summarizing the incredibly complex theories or arguments they're putting forward um, and also because it carries so many rich and varied historical and cultural associations I think it allows scientific writers and researchers to gesture to some of the extra scientific implications of their work which they maybe can't spell out in their scientific work if you see what I mean yeah or things that they kind of can't get to yet right mm, because mm, you know we haven't mm. got an explanation for that yet and so we have to use language in a different way but it's really interesting to me that you talk about the kind of concision of poetry which suggests this sort of in some ways a boundedness right because obviously Mm -hmm. one of the criticisms so often leveled at poetry and I think why poetry and science tend to be culturally pushed apart more so today and I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who used to try and teach poetry to teenage boys um (laughs) you know it's this idea that poetry is just so abstract and it's these flights of fancy that are often in space somewhere and have no ties to reality and so I think this is this is what's really fascinating to me about the way that scientists as you say have actually always interacted with poetry they didn't see it in this same disconnected way well, writing poetry, at least in the 19th century, was a legitimate career and mode of expression. It's something that's idealized. Scientists use poetry in the 19th century. Well, in the 20th century, we have a lot of poets using science. And so that connection continues. It kind of flips in some ways, but it's definitely a sharing relationship that continues into the 20th century. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that idea of poetry as abstract or ideal or spiritual was there in the 19th century. It was an important part of what poetry was in the 19th century, but it was inseparable from this simultaneous view of poetry, which largely stemmed from Romanticism as something that did get its hands dirty, that it did engage directly with the material world. And so poetry starts with the material world, uh, I think, for a lot of 19th century writers. But then it goes beyond that to reach these sort of broader, abstract or spiritual uh, conclusions or theories. And as I mentioned earlier, that was very much how a lot of writers in 19th century Britain saw physical science as well. It started with, with with empirical observations of the material world. But it, it had to go beyond 
those observations of necessity in order to formulate theories, you know, consistent, testable hypotheses. So it's only since kind of reading, you know, part of the new book and the way that you're drawing together mind and matter, it's just, but it screams Hardy, right? You know, I mean, I've written a lot about him in terms of the way he writes about memory, which is in some ways, you know, the most intangible mental phenomena. And yet for Hardy, so much of that is rooted in observations of the material world or a memory being inspired by the ancient floor, the father's violin, the strand of hair, whatever it is that he sees. And he then extrapolates outwards from the material and goes so much further than one could possibly imagine. While I was reading the introduction for your new book, it was making me think back, and I, I am going back, so I've probably misremembered this, but Aristotelian poetics and this hierarchy of recognition. So he's kind of saying physical tokens, physical signs, that's like your base level rubbish recognition. <laughs> and what you actually want to go for is this reasoning through logical argument. And I just wondered, because obviously you talk about inductive reasoning in, in your introduction, how does this relationship between Aristotle's, let's say, outdated <laughs> hierarchy, um, how might that look in your mind and matter 19th century version? I think the majority of writers in the 19th century, they were seen as inseparable or in, in practice, those two sides of it were, were just inseparable. You know, you had to have both. You had to have you had to have ideas on the one hand and things on the other you had to have the material and the mental and any kind of thinking uh whether it was poetic or scientific was not possible uh without that combination without that sort of dialectical relationship between the two and i think some writers were happy to admit that um and then others maybe didn't want to be didn't want to admit it and tried to sort of hide or deny um their dependence on the material world mm. especially if 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 those writers had sort of particular religious um you know religious affiliations that they felt required that sort of distancing from matter but yeah i would say in the practice of poetry and physical science uh, certainly in the way it was written both were written about in the 19th century those two were inseparable in Poetical Matter, you put Hardy in conversation with Einstein. Now, Hardy is an interesting figure because he spans periods which we in literary studies so often and conveniently, if inelegantly, divide into sort of, you know, the Victorian and the modern. Um, and you explore how attentive a reader of Einstein, or at least popularizations of Einstein's theory of relativity, Hardy was. And you go on to suggest that Hardy is actually playing with Einstein's conceptions of, say, things like four-dimensional space-time, when he's articulating his own ideas about time and memory in his later poetry, specifically The Absolute Explains from 1925. What do you think this particular connection between poet and physicist can tell us about how the relationship between literature and science was configured or, or maybe even reconfigured in the early 20th century? I, th I think one of the I think the most important point, Laura, you've probably already mentioned, actually, which is that it, it, it really asks us to rethink our conventional periodizations and the way in which we try and divide writers and scientists into, into, sort of into neat historical compartments. You know, I just I'm fascinated. I love the idea of an 80 year old Hardy, you know, reading Einstein. And so he read he read an awful lot about the theories of relativity in, in, in magazines and newspapers, but he also read Einstein's own popular exposition of the theories of, of special and general relativity. So for, for someone who wasn't trained in physics, I'd say he probably sort of went as, almost as far as you could go in the reading in the very early years after Einstein had, had developed and published his theories. So, and I, I find it really interesting that Hardy uses Einstein's theories at the end of his life he uses these very radical new theories of physics essentially to sort of support the kind of things he's been saying throughout his whole career really about the about the sort of the 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 relativity of perception and the um the unreliability of memory and the way in which time and space are subjective you know, Hardy's been putting forward these ideas throughout his whole career and he sees Einstein as as an affirmation of them, and I just I just think that's so interesting because it suggests there are so many links between 
Victorian and early 20th century ways of thinking, which we often ignore because we focus on the distinctions and we want to divide and separate them. One of the things that struck me in particular about The Absolute Explains is the ideas, Einstein's are very modern ideas, Hardy's had them for a long time, but the poetical form itself is, you know, it doesn't feel like a poem from 1925 in many respects. It, it is a very Hardian poem in many ways, but how do you sort of account for Hardy incorporating newer scientific ideas, but maintaining a, a, a more traditional poetic form or structure? Yeah, that, that's one of the things that really interests me about Hardy at the end of his life. You know, he is this he's this figure adrift, really, in the 1910s and 1920s. <laughs> he is, I'm just, Kathy is saddened by this. Uh, <laughs> I want to look after him. <laughs> no, I know, no, I know. I mean, I think, I think he was okay. I think he quite enjoyed being adrift and, and a bit isolated and miserable. Anyway. Hardy was he was a figure who was adrift in the in the early 20th century in many ways. His as you say Laura his poetry is poetry of the 19th century really in its form. It's particularly poetry of the 1890s I think um which is when he started publishing as a poet. So Hardy uses uh these regular uh poetic forms but they're not conventional poetic forms. So he's not using traditional forms like the sonnet very often, for example. He's using these very regular metrical stanzas, but they're ones of his own design. Um, and I think that is such a, such a nice embodiment of the way in which he sees the world, really, and the, way in, and the view of the world that he uses his poetry to put forward, which is that the world is is simultaneously quantifiable. It can be measured uh, by science or by the rhythms of poetry, but at the same time, it's inexplicable to the individual. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, you know so on, on a, in an objective sense, it can be explained, mm. but those explanations are not sufficient or, or aren't relevant to the emotional experiences of the individual. I mean, I think that's the key thing there, right? The emotional experiences. I mean, I'm just going to briefly take umbrage with the idea that he's an, a 19th century poet because that decimation of the final stanza in the voice, that's so modern, <laughs> I can't cope. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Well, <laughs> no, I'm just, I was just struck by it because I was recently comparing a poem by okay. Hilaire Belloc who's writing about electricity with sort of an absence of electricity in, say, uh, Mina Loy and T.S. Eliot and trying to account for very different metrical innovations and, and things like that. So Belloc and Hardy in 19... Belloc in eight, the 1890s and, and Hardy in, you know, the 1920s, they have a lot in common in, in some ways, but they're, they're doing very different things. Mm. <laughs> Thinking about what happens when you try and add the emotional experience dimension to an understanding of the scientific, of the quantifiable. Because what has always fascinated me about Hardy's relationship to Einstein's theories is, and embarrassingly, I'm going to get this wrong because I'm trying to recall it from memory, that it's something like in the flyleaf of, of one of his Einstein books or on the back of a photograph, he writes about Einstein's theory of relativity and says that E, M and... F. I just, the letters stand for three of his female either relatives or very very close friends who have died are still alive somewhere and so this kind of this very strange extrapolation of Einstein's theory to support an incredibly emotional and quite sort of it's always tenuous for even for Hardy <laughs> idea so sort of how do you square that emotional experience being added into the scientific understanding uh, you cube it Sorry. Sorry. It was it was a really bad maths joke. <laughs> you instead of squaring it, you cube it. Uh, that 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 went completely over my head, Laura. I'm sorry. I live with a mathematician and it goes over his head too. Oh no, it it, uh. it, no, it was it was very funny. I just wasn't I wasn't quick enough. Uh, I apologize. Um, my argument in the book and the Hardy chapter is the final chapter of the book is that that Hardy is, is doing that, is using science as a way of, of thinking through the, his, own, his own emotions, his own subjective experiences, because that's what poets have been doing throughout the long 19th century. And so he is, he is drawing on a long tradition of, of poetic writing about science that does just that, that uses science or that rethinks science in poetry uh, from a subjective perspective. And then at the same time, that's what scientific writers did 
throughout the, the centuries. That's what they use poetry for too, you know. Even in the midst of explaining or lecturing or writing about their scientific theories, they use poetry, whether it's a quotation or their own verse, to gesture towards some of those subjective, emotional or spiritual questions that they don't feel able or, or willing to write about in the prose of their scientific writing. Or that maybe like they, they, they feel their audience or their reader isn't getting via the scientific mm. writing, yeah. right? Because I quite love those moments when you're reading and, and a 19th century scientist quotes a poem and you almost feel like you're stood in a lecture theatre and you, you've said, you know, I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you. And then when they quote a part of a poem, it's as if they're saying, do you get it now? <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that's so true. Yes, yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the things I find really fascinating is that in most cases when they do that, they they quote the poetry with no explanation. Uh, it's it, it, it's not it's not a fully articulated part of their argument. It, it's just there, and you can uh, you can only assume that they assumed that their audience were going to understand or their readers were going to understand why they had put poetry in that piece of scientific prose. Um, it's very difficult to know whether all readers did you know, understand it the way they wanted. But clearly the writers thought that quoting poetry was just an accepted and recognised part of the, you know, the the process of writing about science. And understanding science. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, of, of what we would, yeah, of science communication, of popular science, I suppose we would call it uh, now, uh, which is another reason why, why I, I think it is really interesting that that tradition persists today and writers of popular science, you know, you've, you've got these linguistic conventions, which means that poetry, of course, is no longer uh, acceptable or suitable in academic scientific papers. But in popular science, it's still seen as a really important means of communicating scientific arguments. So I'm intrigued by the way that throughout the introduction to Poetical Matter, you often refer to poets and science writers. So what's the relationship in the 19th century between a scientist and a science writer? And how might both groups, if indeed they are distinct, relate to poets? Great question. I don't know how both of you feel about the use of the word scientist when referring to the 19th century i i just i Mixed. just okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean i i i don't think i avoid it completely in poetical matter i think i probably use it once or twice just because i couldn't think of another word you know at certain times but i because of just the historical complexities of that term and the way in which it, it was in many ways a marginal term throughout much of the 19th century, I, I tend not to use it when writing about 19th century scientific researchers or writers. And I use the, the, the term science writer throughout the book, partly to remind myself, I suppose, as I'm writing that it, this is a, it's a book of literary criticism or literary history. You know, yeah. it, it's not... It's not history of science. And so I am focusing primarily on the ways in which people wrote about science and the language they used uh, to do so. And now, of course, I, I think that that is a massively important part of science. But I also recognise it's not all of science and that, yeah. you know, the practical, physical uh, experiences of doing experiments, of, of you know, of doing field work, that's not something that I was addressing directly in the book i was sometimes talking about the way in which people wrote about those things but yeah. not the actual experiences of doing them if you see what i mean so i found that science writers was a helpful way of reminding me that my focus was on language specifically and i think the, the case the case that you make for that in poetical matter is really strong and i really think that it should be read that just if no if people don't read the rest of the book just read that one bit <laughs> particularly lit, literature and science scholars again and again and again what are the literary questions no it's it's mm. you know it, it's a question that when we are teaching undergraduate students and graduate students we ask people to articulate well why are we interested in the linguistic and mm. uh, problems the for, the problems of literary form exactly and spell it out but do it elegantly and persuasively. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind. Thank you. But, yeah, I certainly, I try and emphasize that when I teach literature and science courses. Yeah, that, I, you know, I try and make Any it... Any course. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I try and make it clear to students that I'm, I'm not necessarily arguing that science is pure discourse. 
necessarily i'm not not trying to say that science is only language and can uh, we're encountering it in that way exactly exactly and also that that is that is the particular contribution that literature and science can make i think to an understanding of science that's that's how i that's how i felt about it for a, a, a good few years now that 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 is one of the things that literature and science is that's what it's for it's what it's best at is really encouraging us to think about the language that is used in science writing and how that language is used so your latest book talks about quote the competing and overlapping uses in poetry and in science of particular terms form experiment words things sound energy rhythm and measure so language is the unreliable vessel that has to carry both poetic and scientific concepts to us so that we can understand them. How has studying science alongside poetry shaped the way you view language? Because I'm, it took me back to writing about memory and as psychologists start to theorize how recognition works from a scientific rather than a sort of literary Aristotelian uh, standpoint, there isn't quite the language in place yet that they seem to want. And they think it's a an 1896 paper by Arthur Allen where he does use recognition, but he also writes of the known againness of objects. That's a double <laughs> hyphenate. <laughs> so this idea that before we have codified scientific definitions of terms, all language seems a bit like an experimental trying out. Yes. Yeah. An essay? Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the puns keep coming. Yep. <laughs> well, one of the one of the writers who I discuss quite a lot throughout the book, actually throughout several chapters, mm -hmm. is William Hewell, who was probably the most prolific coiner of scientific neologisms. It's certainly in the 19th century and probably in the history of the English language, actually. And of course, Hewell famously comes up with the word scientist. So, and he was primarily a philosopher and historian of science. He was an experimental researcher, but he was first and foremost a philosopher of science. And he, Hewell was very interested in the possibility of a language that could precisely and accurately describe the things of the physical world, the constituents of the physical world, and the interactions between them. And that's why he came up with so many of these, of these new words, to try and capture and crystallise these scientific theories. Um, and he was in a lot of his writings. He's he's often critical of the of what he calls the vague and loose analogies of everyday language. A lot of scientific writers in the nineteenth century were very suspicious about figurative language because they worried it was it was a kind of deception on some level that it was suggesting something that was not objectively true. But yet at the same time, Hewell wrote a lot of poetry, uh, not particularly good poetry, um, and he quotes poetry a lot in his scientific writings and at other times he 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 acknowledges explicitly the value of figurative language and analogies in helping to develop scientific theories so there's such a kind of there's such a, a binary uh, or a way of thinking in the 19th century and, and both sides of the binary um, are in play if you see what I mean um, I think basically what you were saying Kathy is absolutely right a lot of these science writers think about language as an experiment. And there are different ways of experimenting with language. One way is to coin these new specific scientific terms. But another way is to reuse existing language, to reuse the language of poetry and to put it into a new context uh, and to, you know, to expose it yeah. to new conditions and to transform it. Definitely. I mean, I think if there's one thing I'd like people just generally to understand, it's that perhaps, as you say, not now in scientific, in academic scientific writing, but still in popular science writing, that previously scientific writing was really descriptive. Mm, mm. And that was totally acceptable. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> not just acceptable, but helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and it makes, it makes Victorian science writing so interesting to read. You know, you can, in the same text, you can jump from a very detailed technical description of an experiment to an evocation of the, the sublimity of nature to a poetic quotation in, in the space of a page. I guess, I think that the way in which, you know, academic science is written today obviously is, is an incredibly effective way of communicating new knowledge to a specialist audience, 
to yeah. an audience of people who already understand the conventions of that language. But I feel like it has lost something as well. You know, the kind of the ambiguity, the richness, the variety of, of Victorian scientific writing is is very interesting. It makes it a joy to read. No, no, it, I was I was just going to say that some some terms have been sort of appropriated in, in hyper specialist ways. Yeah that become more and more specific the more they're used in a particular discipline um, and distance from perhaps a more general and polyvalent meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, I think that it's not that it's jargony, it's that it's specialist. Yes, yeah. And, and disconnected from the sort of maybe everyday or poetical or figurative meanings. Um, but I was wondering if we, we could turn to the, discuss a matter that is close to my own heart, the ether. <laughs> um, okay. An imponderable medium first conceived as a conceptual aid to understanding how invisible substances, effects, or forces such as light, heat, electricity, and magnetism traveled across distances in space. And I think that was, for a considerable period of the 19th century, considered a tangible material reality. So for the geophysicist Patrick Guthrie Tate, then the mathematician Balford Stewart, authors of the influential popular science study The Unseen Universe, which was published in 1875, the ether was the supreme analogy because it could be regarded, quote, as not merely a bridge between one portion of the visible universe and the other, but also as a bridge between one order of things and the other, and end quote. So I was wondering if we could talk about what role the ether in particular and maybe analogies more generally can play in formulating this relationship between literature and science in the 19th century and i know that this is something that you've thought about a lot i i have i have spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about the ether yes and the, the undulations in the ether which were were seen by so many 19th century uh physical scientists as seen (laughs) (laughs) imagined yeah theorized by these by these scientific researchers as arguably the one of the fundamental processes of the universe so yeah you're right it's so important and so interesting the ether It, it was it was obviously a uh something intangible because it doesn't exist um and it was it to was us. to well yes yes but it was it was written about um by so many writers who acknowledged that it was a hypothesis they you know they weren't they weren't arguing that it had been proven but because the hypothesis was so ubiquitous and so fundamental to victorian understandings of physical science they wrote about the ether at the same time as being a hypothesis and as being a real and yes tangible form of matter or at least as real as the tangible forms of matter because if if it doesn't exist what can explain all of these other things that are happening exactly exactly you know if if light and electromagnetic radiation travel as waves they have to be traveling as waves in something that was kind of the that was kind of the crucial uh the crucial conceit the crucial argument underpinning the ether theory um you know, a number of, of science writers said that, you know, phenomena like light and electromagnetic radiation, they're not things, they're forms. Uh, and, you know, if you have a waveform, it has to be a wave in some kind of medium. And therefore, there has to be an ether that permeates the universe and that can enable the transmission of light and other kinds of electromagnetic energy across the universe. And then almost, well, I think every single science writer then makes the analogy with sound and the transmission of sound waves through uh, the the air through the terrestrial atmosphere of the earth and that analogy i think is between light and sound is such an important rhetorical step in victorian science because it immediately familiarizes the ether and makes readers or encourages readers to think that the two are the same Mm. Uh, when, of course, they're, they're well, just... Well, air, air is unseen. Exactly. Ether yeah. is unseen. E- exactly. You exactly. know, you're like, oh, yes, yeah. like that. But we know that sound is transmitted through the air in waves because it's been proven experimentally. Therefore, the same must be true of light in the ether. And that's such an important step uh, in so many um, books and lectures and articles on Victorian science. Um, oh, I was just going to say, it, it's an inductive process. That's yeah. that's inductive reasoning. So that really is showing the limits of of that process, mm. which obviously is related. But I didn't. I, you were also about to say something. Um, 
<laughs> were being the operative. <laughs> no, no, I, I, sorry, I have, re- I have remembered what I was going to say. That analogy between sound and light just exemplifies the way in which scientific theories for the Victorians were simultaneously material and abstract, because they are, you know, it's it's dependent on this you know, detailed scientific understanding of the way in which sound is is transmitted through the material medium of air but it also uses that as the basis of this inductive analogy to elaborate this whole other argument about the ether um and then it, you know it, it went beyond it went beyond light and sound as well and you have some victorian science writers arguing that gravity is also um communicated in waves through the ether which i think is is so interesting given that you that you know recent discoveries and uh, of gravitational waves um and then you have people like uh peter guthrie tate and balfour stewart who argue that the the ether is also a medium for the transmission of thoughts and for the conveyance of the soul into the afterlife as well so the ether really yeah. does everything in in the in, in the 19th century well, and, and, you know, it's, I think also, you know, it, it, it underpins ideas about mesmerism and yes. thought, the manipulation of thoughts and yep. feelings, which takes us back again to Hardy and, and emotion um, and experiences, I suppose. Whereas I, I, you know, I'm just kind of reminded of sort of the sort of vague neo, oh, how do I want to frame this? Um when people say things like we are all made of stars, which obviously, you know, uh, is a wonderful 90s. It's either Radiohead or the Smashing Pumpkins, I think, um, that is a line of one of their songs. But it, the, the idea is that we're connected to this larger universe. It's giving us meaning. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of that, but it feels very intangible, an intangible connection. They're trying to suggest, you know that memory still exists of that thing that happened that sound still exists the stars which are now gone are a part of us yeah, yeah. and just uh, there there's a longing there yeah, yeah absolutely a very and that's very very prevalent throughout victorian 19th century poetry so just as hardy in the 20s is using relativity to try and imagine a kind of immortality mm-hmm. um for the people he's lost throughout 19th century poetry you 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 see poets using the ether and, and this idea that somehow there is a kind of trace of the sounds or the sights that they have previously experienced uh, out there in the universe somewhere it, 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 through the transmission of light or sound. It's, it's, something that's, you, it's something that's written about by Tennyson, by Matilda Blind, who is another poet I discuss in the book. So it's a very, it's kind of sec- using science to imagine a secular form of immortality is a very powerful um, uh, theme of a lot of 19th century poetry well and i think i was just saying, i think huxley as well in the 20th century yes sort of there are moments in brave new world some of his other writings where he has that the that use of starlight greg you teach victorian literature and science at st andrews what do you see students getting from this module and what is the value of interdisciplinary study especially within an undergraduate degree it's interesting teaching that module in Scotland and in St Andrews because um, a, a kind of interdisciplinarity is is encouraged is in fact mandated in the first couple of years of the degree at St Andrews where you know students only really take uh, one English module each semester and the rest of their time they are asked to take uh, modules from other subjects oh, wow. and then in their final two years they they specialize the students who study on my Victorian literature and science module have recent experience of of working on academic subjects other than English. Interestingly, though, kind of institutional barriers and procedures mean that it's actually quite difficult for students to study students of English to study scientific subjects. So it's just that you know they're timetabled so that they yeah. clash, and it's just it's just not really done very often, and so it's not really encouraged. And so usually, what happens is the students have studied history or philosophy or international relations or modern languages or classics they come to the module with very mixed and sometimes quite negative views of science because often their last experience of scientific education was at at, at GCSE level in England or at secondary school in Scotland or the equivalent you know um, if they're from elsewhere one of the things that I try to 
talk about in that module and get the students to think about is the way in which the debates in the Victorian period about the, those two fields map onto the way in which their education has been shaped for them very often, the way in which they've been pushed mm-hmm. towards one or the other, the humanities or the sciences. And they respond usually very well to that, but they are very often nervous or resistant to the scientific material early on. By the end, does that change? Like, does their confidence grow as they study these two things alongside each other? I think so, because they realise soon enough that I really don't know anything about science either. (laughs) Um, And so I think that helps. You know, they feel a bit better then. Um, But, you know, I I, I try and explain to them early on that, you know, the course doesn't require scientific knowledge. um, And that it's, you know, it's not about you know, scientific theory today. It's about the history of science and thinking about literature's place in that. And, you know, we study we study mesmerism and phrenology and, and you know, discourses that would not be considered sciences alongside, you know, evolution and geology, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, the, I hope that the course encourages them to rethink what they understand science to be, how they define science. But if it's an interdisciplinary course, it's, its interdisciplinarity is between literature and the history of science, not literature and science. And that is something that I've, I've, I often worry about in my teaching and have never, never been able to do much about, again, partly because of just institutional pressures, not St Andrews specifically, just the way higher education works. I think it's very difficult to actually design and, and teach courses that genuinely bring together the humanities and the sciences i know some people have done it and done very interesting things with it but it's it's not easy is it Mm. um and i think that is something that often concerns me and that i don't know what what to do about well and it feels like it could be you know a course that if if it were to actually bring together science science teaching and literature teaching science study and literature study you might need a team Yes, yeah. you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, and it's just, and it's, and it's so, it's so difficult to make that happen, just because of the way university curricula are yeah. designed. And so, the most I've ever been able to manage on my literature and science courses at different institutions is to have a guest lecture from a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, where they they come in and give their perspective on how they understand the relation between uh, the humanities and the sciences. And that's great. That's you know, because obviously they they have views and, and and preconceptions which are entirely different from mine. And so, it's really good for the students to to hear that. Th- this kind of literature and science course is really valuable in helping students to think more critically about science and about the claims of scientific knowledge um, but I just I, yeah I also think there's something missing I would love to find a way of teaching in a more fundamentally interdisciplinary way. Arthur Hugh Clough is often overlooked and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to explain to listeners why they should be reading Clough now and always. Uh, Arthur Hugh Clough is the most un-Victorian of Victorian writers. He is, um, he's, uh, he's funny. He is hilariously... <laughs> no Victorian was ever funny. Uh, well, oh. <laughs> he's, he's one of the... He's no, one I'm of, joking, I'm he's joking. He's one of I'm the joking. funniest. Um, he is yeah. um, relentlessly and often hilariously sceptical about... Well, pretty much everything, actually. Um, pretty much all of the sort of received wisdom of, of his society um, and the, the all of the kind of social, political, cultural conventions of the 19th century, he, he subjects to this merciless uh, satirical scrutiny. Um, and he's, yeah, he's just, he's, he's, he's fascinating. He's so interesting to read. The, the reason I really got into Clough is because I started teaching him just for one week of a Victorian poetry module. And almost without fail for several years on, on a run, he was the poet who most interested the students because he just was not what they were expecting in Victorian poetry. Uh, and so I've, I've just edited this, this selection of Clough's writings, which is coming out uh, in September. It's the first ever um, edition of Clough that combines his poetry and his prose. Yeah, I'm really hoping that this will be read by people and they will appreciate how wonderful and entertaining and clever and insightful Clough is. And it will certainly be a great teaching resource. I hope so. I hope so. Yes. I think so. Greg, it remains to thank you so much for um, sharing your ideas and your time so generously with us. We're, we're glad to have you on this episode of Let's I Pod. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was so much fun. Real pleasure. 
This is an excerpt from Matilda Blinn's 1889 poem, The Ascent of Man, which I discuss in my book on 19th century poetry and the physical sciences. The Ascent of Man is a mini-epic that tries to incorporate human history into a universal narrative of biological, geological and cosmological evolution. It's an ambitious poem, and it's often interpreted as a typical example of Victorian liberal progressivism. But its model of progress is cyclical. For Blind, progress depends on processes, the rotation of stars and planets, the conservation of energy, the evolution of new species, political revolutions, that are embodiments of a universal and repetitive rhythm. And Blind conveys this rhythm in the form of the poem, in its metres and its rhymes, and also in its narrative. So it starts with the formation of the earth, and at the end of the poem, the speaker, horrified by the social inequality and suffering she sees in Victorian Britain, imagines as a kind of desperate solace the end of the world. But then her despair is redeemed by a vision of the birth of new, and possibly better, worlds. Through the crash of wave on wave gigantic, through the thunder of the hurricane, my wild heart in breaking, shrilled with frantic exultation, chaos come again. Yea, let earth be split and cloven asunder, with man still accumulating curse. Life is but a momentary blunder in the cycle of the universe. Yea, let earth with forest-belted mountains, hills and valleys, cataracts and plains, with her clouds and storms and fires and fountains, pass with all her rolling sphere contains. Melt, dissolve again into the ocean, ocean fade into a nebulous haze. And I sank back without sense or motion, neath the blank moon's mute Medusa face. Moments, years, or ages passed, when, lifting freezing lids, I felt the heavens on high, and innumerable as the sea sands drifting, stars unnumbered drifted through the sky. Rhythmical in luminous rotation, in Dedalian maze they reel and fly, and their rushing light is time's pulsation in his passage through eternity. Constellated suns, fresh-lit, declining, were ignited now, now quenched in space, rolling round each other or inclining orb to orb in multicoloured rays, ever showering from their flaming fountains light more light on each far-circling earth, till life-stirred crepuscular seas and mountains heaved convulsive with the throes of birth. And the noble brotherhood of planets, knitted each to each by links of light, circled round their suns, nor knew a minute lapse or languor in their ceaseless flight. And pale moons and rings and burning splinters of wrecked worlds swept round their parent spheres, clothed with spring or sunk in polar winters, as their sun draws nigh or disappears. We've come to that special moment in the episode where it is time for some final words. Dragoon. Prosaic. And those are our final words. Thanks for joining us for the sixth of our second series of Lit Sci podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, or if you want to join in on the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LitSciPod. Don't forget to tweet using the hashtag LitSciPod. You can even email us at litsipod at gmail.com.